I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and wherever you're listening from, it's great to have you with us for Series 10. Yes, I know, I can't believe it either. If we were a Netflix series, we'd be on a million and ep by now, I'm sure. So whether you're a new listener or an old friend, we hope you enjoy the selection of amazing writers we have lined up for you on this series, which include the two people sat before me, one in person, here in our London studio and the other virtually on a big old screen in the corner. My first guest is a singer, songwriter, radio presenter who formed the band Deacon Blue in 1985. Now, I know he doesn't look it and went on to have great chart success, tour the world and leave us all singing, stand it up, stand it up, stand it up. His radio show in other countries on BBC Radio Scotland every Tuesday at eight o'clock and available on the iPlayer, of course, as is his brilliant podcast, Ricky Ross Meets. Here to tell us about his first memoir, Walking back home it's unbelievably ricky ross <laughs> nice to see you Jill. and lovely to see you too welcome to our studio and to book off and my second guest began her writing career as a teenage columnist on the sunday times going on to have columns in the guardian the independent and l after writing and publishing her first three novels she moved to hollywood to work as a screenwriter she wrote and directed untogether her first feature which was released in 2018 and her most recent novel royals was one of the Radio 2 Book Club Picks, and that's a sign of quality if ever there was one. I wonder who picks them. And here to talk about those Hollywood days and her new memoir, Busy Being Free, it's Emma Forrest. Hello, Emma. Hello. Yeah, very happy to be Welcome here. Welcome to Book Off all the way from Deal in Kent. Deal in Kent, which is uh, a different kind of beach from a Hollywood beach. Sort of an interesting beautiful. <laughs> Back and forth from the pebbles to the sand, but I like it. <laughs> yes, it is a bit different from the old uh, Malibu sand. Um, and I know uh, we've already spoken off air, but Ricky, Emma, Emma, Ricky, we're all friends now uh, and the introductions are done. And over the next sort of 30 minutes or so, we're going to talk about your two brilliant memoirs, which I have read recently and absolutely loved. We're going to talk about your writing, what you love to read. And of course, we'll do the book off where each of you gets three minutes to tell us about a book that you love, that you think everyone listening should pick up and read if they haven't. Uh, Ricky, hello again. Hi, Joe. Thanks so much for being here. We we have met several times over the years in in, in around the BBC, yeah. old auntie. Um, and so I was so excited to um, get your memoir. And I was told about this quite a while ago. And you know when you have those meetings where people go, oh, we've got some things coming up you might be interested in. And I said, oh, yeah. And I said, yeah, we've got this um, memoir from Ricky. I went, I want it. Yes, send it to me. Um, and I absolutely ate it up. I loved it. Oh, good. Thank, um, you, for, thank you very much. <clears throat> you wrote it in 2020, right? I wrote it in 2020, but I actually started in 2019, I think. Um, but 2020, because that was the year of the lockdown, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. 2020 was... You know, an unexpected <laughs> chance to to do a little project that you weren't really banking on. You know, we should have been on tour, doing a lot of stuff. We had an album just came, just 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 before that had come out, and I'd started it and I'd written all these little ideas. I just wrote little just um, points to think, oh, that's a story, that's a story, um, and so I, I wrote a lot of it then. And then about 
last summer, maybe early, early June, uh, friends of mine gave me a little cottage uh, that they own um, to go away for a few days. Oh, nice. Uh, which, and so I took the dog up in Perthshire. And it was actually lovely weather. And I wrote for uh, um, a week. So that actually was great. That was a great time. So, it, it, you know, it takes a little bit of time. And then I've, uh, to my, well, I, because I've never written a book before, I had no idea yeah. what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't realize how much <laughs> editing, sub-editing, all that kind of thing would happen in the early part of this year, which I was thinking was going to be quiet. So, yes, it, it, you know, it mm. probably took about three years. Right, okay. And you write in the book about the how hard it is to know when a song is actually fi finished. You know, it's tricky to know that. How did you know when the book was finished? Obviously, you're talking about your life and your career, so there is a sort of end, i.e. up to now. But when did you know that you'd sort of said everything you wanted to say? Well, I mean, I suppose that's a very open-ended and... and um... I ended up taking things out, which I think is all. I, I wanted to overwrite anyway, because I think that I kind of do that when I'm songwriting, making an album. I always think it's quite nice to be able to to drop things out mm. uh, and bring it down a bit. Um, and I was thinking about this ending last night, because I, I actually had a little wonder. I went I went along to hear um, the prom. I, my, my life is just so full of talking to people at the moment. And I love... I'd never get a chance to go to the Albert Hall, but I'm, I've been playing it, obviously. I, I once went to the proms, and I went last night to hear this uh, Sim Mala symphony. I thought, I thought it was beautiful. It was just a lovely way of just totally kind of zoning out. Mm. And I, I didn't know that what I don't know classical music that well. And I'd forgotten that it ends just really, really quietly. It just doesn't have this big ending <laughs> at all. And it's that kind of moment where the audience, oh, is it? Oh, no. And I quite yeah, <laughs> and I kind of thought you know that's probably the way to go. So I did end it the book, um, and then I went on tour, mm -hmm. and touring was so so different, so madly. Oh, I mean, it was like it was amazing at one level because every night you were going back to audiences that thought you know life was never coming back. Yeah. So you yeah. had that whole thing of oh this is amazing, but at the same time. There was another strain of COVID coming in and you could see the masks appearing. There was a whole lot of... No we had sold out shows with no shows, people who were just mm. maybe too scared mm -hmm. to come. You didn't know what the story was there. And then eventually, the last week of the tour got cancelled. Um, we couldn't play our big gig in Scotland. So it was a feeling of amazing <sighs> gratitude mm. for being able to go out and tour. A feeling of, gosh, it would have been great if I had finished. <laughs> yeah. And also... So I was able to sort of reflect on all of that, but also of a feeling of just um, actually gratitude towards my fellow musicians. Because when, you, when you're this old and you've been working with these people, I just got to a point of thinking, you know, I'm really, this is an amazing thing to be able mm. to do. To be able to go back and do it and still do it and have these great relationships with people. And don't get me wrong, we've all had our moments. You know, <laughs> yeah. the time, you know, it's a band, you know, yeah. for God's sake. It's a band. It's really is, you know, there's always, there's always going to be something. But I, I was able to write a sort of postscript uh, for the book. So that's when it was finished. Yeah. And we'll come and talk a bit more about um, those moments, as you put it, and indeed the sort of the, the love and respect that you have for, for the band, which comes through the pages in a minute. Um, Emma, if I could come to, to you... Um, because there are so many quotable lines and phrases, I think, from this book, Emma. I, I love it when you describe a playmate's mum looking around your London flat, exclaiming, I think the line is, how did this happen to you? And as you rightly say, <laughs> it, that had come out wrong. And then you write, my life had come out wrong. So my first question to you, I suppose, about this memoir is, how did this book happen to you? Oh, uh, hmm. Uh, the book happened to me because I was getting divorced and had sort of a lot of um, weirdly love and optimism um, that I was kind of left alone to marinate in in the lockdown when I got back to London because I had been living in America for a long time, 20 years, um, and uh, my ex-husband allowed me to come back to be closer to my family with my kid, with our kid. And we ended up in this little top floor flat um, at the top of Muswell Hill in an attic flat, just like with this epic, epic view in a lockdown. And so it was 
just the perfect place to sit and marinate on like what got me there because I have always lived my life by love and been such an art romantic and sort of the records I bought and the clothes I bought and the air tickets I bought were all connected to whoever, you know, was the lover of the moment. And so it was just incredible and unexpected to be in solitude and not be at all lonely. Um, and I just wanted to write about that was sort of the book is kind of 80% a celebration of being by myself for the first time. Yeah. I want to talk about LA, if I may, and I want to talk to both of you about it because there's a bit of the book, uh, of your book, Ricky, which, you know, in that sort of uh, mid-90s bit where you go over and you live in West Hollywood for a bit and you do some of the solo records. And Emma, obviously, you lived in, in Los Angeles for a long old time, as you said, about 10 years. Uh, you, you moved in 2005, I think. I lived there briefly in 2003. Uh, you were there about 95 and have probably been back several times, Ricky. Now, I as regular listeners to this podcast know, love Los Angeles. And I'm always fascinated. I'm like eternally fascinated by it. And at any opportunity, like we're doing now, I want to talk about it. But it makes sense to talk about it, especially with you, Emma, because it was such a big part of your life and this book. I suppose I want to know how how quickly, if ever, you got into the rhythm of life there and became an Angelino. Well, um, I think LA was just such a mental health savior because I'd never experienced that expansive sky before. And I think there was something incredibly healthy about literally feeling small in the world. Um, <laughs> and as soon as I started to feel that gratitude, I kind of felt like a Angelino because um, I think there's so much magic there. It's so easy if you're in Europe to be snotty about LA and say, you know, fake people and fake boobs and fake teeth. and Actually, I don't think there's any more fake people there than there are in London. It's just they're actually easier to spot. You know, you can stay away from them more easily. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I really, I, I loved it there more than I love New York, actually. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, it's, it's great to hear you talk about it like that because I feel the same way, strangely. And when, every time I go back, I always have a wonderful time. And I'm always met with that sort of sense of, or from the buildings and the skyline, as you say, and being stood on, you know, the beach and looking out there. Um, how did you find it, Ricky, when you were there? Because obviously you you went mid-90s and and recorded your first solo record there and lived sort of living in West Hollywood, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, and we, and we went back, Lorraine and I went back and made an album in 29, uh, 2009 um, in Silver Lake. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I was there by accident a few months ago. Oh, really? Tried, were you? <laughs> I tried to drive down, uh, tried to drive down the coast and think, oh, we need, we need a thing. Lorraine needed a pee stop, and we were driving down to Santa Barbara. And thought, no, don't need to go to LA. Oh, oh no, oh, we're in it. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> no, we're coming out of Santa Barbara. That's what it was. Anyway, um, I, I love. I'm like Randy Newman. I love LA. I mean, yeah. I, I'm I'm sort of of that opinion. And I think I tell a story in the book, which is is very funny because there's lots of people in Nashville who've just basically. You know, LA's got too much, and they discovered that when I first went to Nashville, they were selling. People, you, do you remember Kim Carnes, the artist Kim yeah. Carnes? Yeah, yeah. She was one of the first person I wrote to, and she'd sold this big spread out in, in Hollywood or LA, kind of wherever. Come to Nashville, of course, it bought them acres of, you know, property. And they were loving it. And then I remember one day was, I was working with this guy who was very, one of the Nashville real hit songwriters. And he was very LA in his look. And he obviously come from there. He got the blonde hair and all that kind of thing. And I was trying to describe um, the fact that I, I wasn't so fond of San Francisco, even though I've got more connection. My daughter lives uh, very near San Francisco. Mm. And I was trying to, <laughs> try to explain that I kind of liked LA because we'd always, I think because we'd always worked there and we had a connection with it. And he said, yeah, I know what you mean. San Francisco is too communist. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I'm from Glasgow. Yeah. You don't know. You really don't know what a communist is. But um, but I think, Ellie, the connection for me, and and I mean, obviously, Emma will, and you, guys, you, you, Joe, will comment on this. I think the connection for me also was just working there because I was working in studios. And I, I the three different projects there. And it was always like you felt connected with the stories. And, and that's why I loved it. Mm. Yeah, I think I have this theory that um, cities that are prone to earthquakes are really great creative hubs because it's a real palpable energy and it's not even necessarily a good energy. It's not bad energy. It's just like you can feel it. 
Like, there's a reason. Yeah, I think LA has a really beautiful literary scene that I think a lot of the time Europeans aren't really aware of. You know, one of my all-time favorite, we can get to it, but one of my favorite books is Ask the Dust by John Fante. Oh, um, I've written this down, Emma. I've literally got it Emma. in here. Look, it says... You mentioned John Fante. I'm reading it now. You mentioned John Fante in your memoir. Can we just have a moment for Ask the Dust? I've literally written that question down there. Yeah, sorry. I pre it's one of my favourite books. Yeah. Yeah. Rich, rich, rich uh, lit scene there. But I don't know why people here don't really know about it. Do you know this book, Ricky? No, I don't. I don't. Oh, I'm going to buy it for you. and ah. shove it into uh. your hand and you're going to enjoy it on the train or the, the plane or whatever. It's, it's about 200 pages. Oh, wow. Of pure literary genius and it's about LA and it's about a writer in LA anyway I'm not going to I've, I've talked about it so much Emma on this podcast that I'm not going to sort of do it again and bore everyone um, both of these by being memoirs obviously are very open and honest but you know you, you're both very honest in these books um, Emma you write very honestly about relationships about sex about your feelings it's very deep but it's also incredibly humorous, I found. And I wondered if that came from fine-tuning it or if actually the way that you were writing this and it came from your head was in that humorous way. No, I mean, I think because I've written a memoir before 10 years ago. This is going to be my plan, a memoir every decade. Um, and <laughs> but that's how I see difficult stuff is it's funny. Like, that's the Leonard Cohen school, right? Is, you know, a lot of the time people forget how hilarious so much of his writing is and actually my favorite dylan songs are the funny ones so it's that it's just like what else are you going to do except laugh at yourself you know that's really interesting that you sorry this is a diversion but i listen i love this by the way i think it's amazing um and and emma's i mean emma's emma's honesty is much more honest than my honesty because i there's that i couldn't I, i'm maybe too old uh, to, you know, I mean, I can't talk about masturbation. I still can't admit to that stuff, you know. Um, so it, it, it's I love this, and I, I, I wish I could be, you know, this this honest. However, what I was going to say was about the humor, and I always often say that I, I'm a great Tom Stoppard fan, and I always think that great plays are funny. You know, great, mm. great. You know, it doesn't matter if you go to see if you go to the Royal Shakespeare when they were great or whatever. Any great play, a Chekhov play, is funny. And there's no two ways about it. If it's not funny, it's unlikely to be good. Um, and I think I agree with you, Joe. I think it must made me laugh out loud at points <laughs> and cry at the next minute, which I think is perfect. But I think you're right. I think these things. I think the humour is always there, and and I don't even think, I don't even need to call it black comedy or dark comedy. It's just it's just life. It's that's what yeah. it is. Yeah. And I also think because um, I'm a massive film fan as well. The most moving thing an actor can do on screen is to not cry. That's to watch an actor managing not to cry is much more moving than to watch them weeping. So actually, the one thing I'm mad at myself when I go back through the memoir is I cry too much. It like I, I guess I cry a lot in real life because I think I cut about five crying scenes, and I'm still left with five crying scenes. But yeah, <laughs> I, tried to, um, I tried to hold back. But you, there is an honesty in this book though Ricky wouldn't you say I mean you 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 talk quite openly and frankly about the band and about your early childhood and everything uh, I do but I know there's things I didn't talk I mean I I purposely you know I went through a divorce which to be honest with you um I felt that I inflicted enough pain on the person without trying to talk about it I feel I've been married for 32 years with Lorraine but I'm not going to start talking about her because I think and actually she's got far better story to tell uh, her own life is mm. far more I mean my life is really dull nothing, nothing's really <laughs> happened you know like I remember looking at a family tree um someone doing a genealogy you know genealogy that my um, and my son said so is it right that in 200 years nothing's happened in your family I said yeah that's pretty well they've, they've moved from you know Forfar to Dundee that's about it so you know what that's a, that's the truth of it but I think what is important is not really what's happened and I kind of stayed away from the people I'd met and all the rest of it I think it's what's what's moved you what's changed you mm. and who you've met that's that's made an impression on you and how that's changed you so I kind of stuck with that and I didn't write about my kids because again I think they've suffered enough <laughs> with having parents who are, who, are, who are pop singers you know <laughs> yeah but there are no there are as you say there are characters um, well real life people 
from your life that you do mention and you don't dwell on it and it's not a list of you know his famous names we've talked mm. with or please but you know i like the way that mike scott crops up quite early on because you supported the water boys quite mm. early on and like what he sort of said to you then and his loving the cover that you did and then he crops up again and then dylan towards the end mm. so and again you just sort of they're light touch but but you get a or certainly i did i got a sort of sense of like okay i think i know a bit about Ricky now and music. Yeah, taste and, and, and the people I did talk about were people like my first employers and so mm. on. And the other night when I did the launch in Glasgow, the widow of my old headmaster was there. Oh, uh, really? And I sort of talk about him quite a lot because he was an amazing character. And I think these people that, you know, when you're in your early 20s, the people that you meet and sort of, you know, I'd live in a very sort of little middle class enclave and then suddenly you're kind of exposed to the world mm. and there's deep poverty and there's deep... Um, social inequality out there and you're sort of exposed to that for the first time in your life i think these the, the kind of people and encounters that you make at that point are, are huge you know just massive mm. and i can never thank these people enough so it was a it was a nice chance to sort of say thank you to some people who probably i'd never got round to mm. thanking and i love the sound of your gran yeah which one <laughs> oh the the, the the slightly more bohemian the, one. the bohemian <laughs> gran, yeah <laughs> <laughs> she sounds great. Yeah, she was. She was someone else. <laughs> um, Emma, part of your book is, is obviously, in my opinion, are um, are quite Hollywood in their own way. I'm thinking of like a particular scene when Ben, your then actor boyfriend, leaves. You like love letters on unpaid bills. For example, oh, yeah. I was th- I read it and thought, well, that could be in a you know that could be in a screenplay. Um, and I just wondered if if there was ever a point when you were sort of writing down and reliving some of these memories and stories where you were like, oh yeah, this is a bit like a, a bit like a movie. Um, I think it probably bleeds in and out of your life just from the last thing I did before I wrote this book was direct my first film. And I think that probably recon, well, two things happened that were LA based. One was directing the first film that I think reconfigured things so that even while I was experiencing them, I was like, oh, I can feel how to light this, except by lighting it, I mean how to phrase it. It just felt different writing after directing for the first time. And the second thing that happened, for what it's worth, is they legalized weed in California. And I have been like straight edge my whole life. It was bizarre to people that I was a young music writer and I didn't drink, I didn't take drugs, I never did, it wasn't my thing. Like people go to the bars and I would eat ice cream <laughs> but um <laughs> when they legalized weed when i was 40 this is a great gift that i can't possibly reject the legal weed i started smoking then and i smoked pretty solidly for like two years and then one day i just stopped and didn't ever do it again but i actually think it rewired me slightly in a really positive way so that i had oh, wow. yeah like the cliche of like you know the high person getting down their inspiration it kind of worked for me and still does. Like there's some weird rewiring hangover where I'm definitely finding it easier to... Um... Ricky, I don't know if you know what I mean when I say like a snowflake idea. Like I'll have often an idea that's like a beautiful snowflake. It's so amazing to look at. And then when I touch it, it just melts in my hand and it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. And that happens yeah. less in the last few years. Maybe it's aging i don't know a bit like one of these things when you um you know you wake up in the morning and and so the, the dream's kind of there and then it's, by the time you get to the bathroom it's gone yeah, yeah. yeah. you're just clinging onto it but yeah. it, it fades yeah, yeah you yeah. know I, can i say something Emma, that i that was a reflection that i i found myself saying this morning i was talking to someone about um the, 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 this afternoon was when i finished your book i thought to myself if we didn't know that these characters were real, that you were, that, you know, you were really writing a, a, a memoir. Yeah. Um, it would, it could read as a novel. But I feel like anyone's life could if you write it a certain <laughs> way. I mean, I, I don't think... Um... Yeah, but yours, yours felt structurally almost like a novel, you know what I mean? I, you know, in the sense that it, it kind of contained itself to these central themes um, and sort of resolved itself... Thank you. I mean, that's a huge compliment. And I think a lot of that is just really having a very good editor because a lot came out. Um, uh, so it's what a great psychiatrist 
of mine once called a real partial truth. Everything in there is true, but there's other things that aren't in there that would make a different kind of truth. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that flow is just having a great editor who said you're uh, slowing the momentum. There's nothing that isn't. Yeah, I had one. I had one too. I had a, a very good one too, actually. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, it's, have you ever read um, Raymond Carver's work before his genius editor had been through it? Like, it's really different. No, <laughs> no, that's interesting. It's, 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 no, because uh, it's funny you should say Raymond Carver, because years later I discovered that he'd written this amazing book, amazing, amazing poem, which I must have somehow taken on board, which has almost sounds like dignity. The Lord <laughs> really? Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> and it has actually a line thinking about home. And I, and I, and I don't... I don't think I ever read it until after I wrote Dignity, but it's kind of one of these weird things. I'm sure I didn't, wow. but yeah, it's odd, odd. So which which point do we come to Raymond Carver then? When was the genius editor installed? When was he in, I think he was kind of there from the beginning. And I think um, for me, the process of writing a book is always a year of writing and a year of editing, like a solid year of editing. And by editing, right. I just mean, you know, cleaner, drafts which might be i think it's the good effect of screenwriting maybe it's like what you don't want me to write 26 drafts for no reason i'm delighted <laughs> yes i'll keep working um oh and i can i can take my time over descriptions about what people are thinking and seeing okay great that's yeah. lovely <laughs> we had um david cap uh, screenwriting legend on the podcast for the last series and he's written a couple of books and, and was saying how liberating it was after sort of 25 screenplays that he'd you know written and had had made um to be able to really talk about what's in a character's head was just you know he was like i can't believe i get to do this and i don't just have to write you know yeah. hey what's up yeah um, <laughs> i get that i understand are uh, you talked about touring ricky and how it had to be curtailed obviously you're going back out though aren't you with this book and, and doing an acoustic tour i am i'm 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 doing i mean the the, the album that comes odd enough as we talk the album comes out tomorrow uh, which is short stories volume two and basically I, I sort of did an album on the lines of 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 how i tour which is just piano you know, songs of piano mm. stories so with with the book i'm gonna I'm going to try and I, I, I've never done this before, but obviously, but I'm going to try and see if I can read a little extract occasionally on the tour mm. and then, and then, and then do a song. I mean, that's, that's, a, someone's just asked me, someone's chatting about a book festival next week and they said, oh, there's no interview. You just have the stage for half. And I think, what the hell am I going to, you know I mean? I, I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't function without someone asking a question, you know? So I've got, I can't stand up and just, I, I, I just can't do that. Yeah. But I can answer questions. But um, I think, you know, the, the idea of, you know, thinking like the audience, their eyes are starting to glaze over time for a song. You know, I can, yeah. I can sort of, I can probably feel that one. Um, yeah. And also I think that structure and that idea of, of you know, knowing as an audience member that, that what you're talking about is going to relate to what we're about to hear and actually then listening to a song, some of which we may think we know really well and have heard yeah. loads of times to come to it with a slightly new perspective because of what you've told us. It's that's a really nice thing, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I, and because I've given some time to actually think in what the prose should be, you know, rather than sometimes as songwriters, we're terrible for rambling, you know, mm. just, I mean, you know, we're, you know, yeah, and people, my wife will say, oh, was all mumbling about you because know, because you're trying to you haven't articulated that thought at all so maybe actually reading especially when it comes to things like my mum and dad who my mum passed away just a couple of years ago and then my dad a long time ago but they are she she's she's got a song on this new record uh and i've written other things that are about her and mm. um and my dad there was a lot of stuff that i wrote in my first solo album and i kind of just wanted to, to do that well because i think that Interesting enough, talking about Emma, my, my dad suffered quite severe depression. And this is like 1996 when my first solo record came out. And I was I started doing solo shows maybe about a year after that. And I would talk about my dad. Now, I know it doesn't seem that long ago. Well, it doesn't seem that long ago to me, but it was amazing how much people would come up to me at the end and say, thank God you started speaking about bipolar things mm, as, mm. I, as I, I sort of thought my dad had although I don't think it was just as simple as that but basically talking about mental health stuff out loud because believe it or not in 97 that was still a bit of a, an odd taboo 
mm. which I, you might want to comment on that one. Um, I guess, well, my thing is that I actually haven't had um, any incident in like 20 years, I think. Um, I had a really brilliant, unusually brilliant psychopharmacologist who not only was like what we call a mensch, but just a good guy who I kind of rode the coattails of his faith in me until I had faith in me, which took a while. But he also um, put me on the medication I'm still on today that's actually weirdly an epilepsy medication used off label that works um, for me, which mm. is a real lock of the draw thing that makes me very sad is that a great many people with mental health issues never get the right combination of medication. Like, I know that, um, who struggle their whole lives. Um, and I think the books are always just like, to be, I know it sounds macabre, and I wish I could convince people I mean this in a really beautiful and optimistic way, but they're really just suicide letters that I don't have to send in the end. You know, they're, they're just like the final goodbyes and then you get to live. It's like, you know the way everyone was amazed that Beyonce made a divorce album without having to get divorced? <laughs> you know, suicide letters where I just don't have to see it through. Yeah. Yeah. I love that thing you said in the book as well, the fact that it's cheaper to, to, to take your own life than it is to survive, which I thought was quite, a, I mean, it had never occurred to me before. Thank you. Yeah, I, and, and, and the other thing that I do, I will say I find really hard and it will be interesting for you to see how it feels for you, is I do forget they exist beyond me finishing them. Like I'm so compelled to, to, to write these memoirs and finish them and then I'll meet people who I haven't met before who know all this stuff about me and I can't understand how they know it about me. And then it's like, oh yeah, I wrote it in a book. Um, <laughs> I always think they'll just vanish into the ether. And the really hard part for me, um, like, look, for example, it will be excerpted um, this weekend in The Guardian, uh, Saturday magazine, and they've sent me the PDF and that, everything you so generously said about my bravery and writing about the masturbation and all of that, like seeing it in a newspaper is horrifying to me. That I found <laughs> disturbing, just like awful. Whereas there's something about the context of the safe pages of a book that I can put the same words yeah. in. It feels really different. Yeah, The Guardian is notorious for doing that. I always think that they're notorious for loving gossip and, and their headlines are very much like that, of course. You know, it's like posh papers and then they wait for the tabloids to do the story and then they rehash it the yeah. next day, even more sensationally. <laughs> yeah. There's something about, you know, like you have to sit for your portrait and something about seeing my picture next to my words I found really, really disturbing. <laughs> I look forward to seeing that uh, when it comes out and just seeing what, how it looks on the page. <laughs> I always like to ask my guests what they've been reading and enjoying recently. Um, sometimes we don't get time to read. Um, sometimes on tour, I imagine it's the best intentions, Ricky, but then you actually end up not being able to really become yeah. a book. Is there anything recently that you've um, sort of enjoyed and want to shout about? Well, on my radio show, I've just interviewed Marissa Moss, who's a, who's a New York Jewish woman who used to work for Rolling Stone and moved down to Nashville. Mm. And she sort of has, I mean, it's brilliant because she's come down to Nashville with just completely fresh ears and eyes and has written this book called Her Country, um, Why the Women of Country Succeeded When They Weren't Supposed To. <laughs> and it's really framed around Casey Musgraves, Mickey Guyton, who's uh, African-American, and Myron Morris. And, um, but also lots of women, because this incredible statistic is that in 2021, on country radio, women were played 10% of the time, which most people just cannot believe. Wow. This. So I do a country music radio show. Um, and Marissa has been my guest on this. It's on BBC Sounds now. It's a really fascinating read. So I've been reading that. And the other music book that I've really enjoyed, I, I think the things that I'm trying to think of things that I've really enjoyed. Yeah. And a friend of mine who's our, also our national correspondent had interviewed Peter Garalnik a few months ago. And he said to me, you know, he's still alive. He's quite old. And he, if you haven't read it, the Elvis, just because Elvis is in the movies at the moment, mm. I haven't seen the movie, but the, his Elvis biographies are just the greatest books on rock and roll. Oh, I wow. Think. Yeah, they're just they're just amazing. Be part one and part two, 
Um, and, and actually, you, if you think you know Elvis, I don't think you do until you read them. Yeah. Amazing, amazing biographies. Oh, I've got to make a note of that because that's right on the alley. By Peter Gronick. Gronick. I can never yeah. say his name. I know. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Ricky. What about you, Emma? Have you been have had time to read and anything that you'd want to recommend? Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a like is not the right word because this is a really um, it's a novel called Acts of Desperation by Megan Nolan and it's about coercive control. But mm. she's such an incredibly elegant writer. Um, that she just comes at this really ugly, confronting subject in a in a really um, impressive and and uh, kind of weirdly beautiful way. Um, it's just you know what it reminds me of. It's it's so spare and elegant and astute and intellectual. It's like a great great horror movie, like a Rosemary's Baby. Oh wow! Wow! Um, and she. One of those writers that's lately been on the, you know, 20 best under 30. She's young. And uh, she's, she's brilliant. Like, it's not hype. Yeah. She's, she's just fantastic. And what was that called again? Uh, Act of Desperation by Megan Nolan. Thank you very much. And thank you both for those recommendations. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, and now it's time for another, because it's time for the book off. This is where each of you is going to get three minutes, if you want it, to tell us about a book you love that you think we should all read. Now, this could be anything. It's, it could be fiction. It could be nonfiction. It could be old. It could be new. It could be a play. It could be a children's book. Um, it's very much open, and I'm very careful to never say to guests that it's their favourite book because mm. I could never pick a favourite. I could never pick a favourite album or song. I could never pick a favourite book. So it's just one that you love and you think we should all read. Before we find out what they are, we need to do a little bit of admin. So... Um, as you have travelled the furthest, I think, Ricky, you get to decide if you go first or second. I'll, I'll, I'll go second. I'll okay. go definitely You're going to see what Emma's made of. Yes, you should um, pick the same one. Yeah. <laughs> and Emma, you get to choose at the three-minute mark, if you're still talking, whether you are rung out by the bell or honked out by the bicycle horn. Which would you prefer? Um, the bell, please. You're going to get the school bell. All right, fantastic. Um, so I'm going to put three minutes on the clock. And just before we start it, Emma, tell us the book that you're putting forward, please. I am putting forward Eve's Hollywood by Eve Babbitt. Fantastic. All right, three minutes uninterrupted. Over to you to tell us about Eve's Hollywood. Eve's Hollywood is a hybrid memoir novel that was published by Eve Babbitt uh, in Los Angeles around 1972, 73. I am fascinated by her because she was a, uh, according to some, elevated groupie or at least um, uh, muse who also happened to be a complete and total genius, probably, if not equal, far beyond most of the men 
that she was with and who she wrote about. She was with Jim Morrison. She was with, she had great taste across genres. She was with Steve Martin. She was with Harrison Ford. Um, in fact, late in life, when she had a horrific car accident and was on life support, she woke from a coma to find that her bills had all been paid off split equally between Harrison Ford and Steve Martin. And when she was told her first two words on waking from her coma were blowjobs. <laughs> By way of explanation. Um, I think I would have found her a real bomb if I had found her when I was a teenager in my first job as a music writer at the NME, where the great accusation leveled against me and Catelyn Moran at the same time was she's just a fan. And what I love about Eve Babbitt's writing is it really is a great example of two things existing in opposition, which is to be the fan, to be the muse, but also to be the creator. It's very much, you know, not a Leonard and Marianne story. Like she's just such incredibly powerful energy, beautiful writer. The writing is like jazz. It feels freestyle, but it's actually very precise. Um, she is an amazing conjurer of time, place, mood, scent. She loves Los Angeles. All her writing is about LA. And that's rare is there's great books about LA, but they tend to be bleak, like Day of the Locust and like John Fante asked the dust. And this is just about the absolute magic of Los Angeles. Um, and one of my favorite things about her is her greatest adulation is for other women's beauty. She's a heterosexual woman. Her most riveting writing is about the beauty of other women. She finds it so elevating. Um, uh, she went to Hollywood High, where every 20th person ended up becoming a movie star. Um, and uh, if I may, if I have time, let's see. Um, I would love to tell you one of my favorite lines, which is, ah, no, I'm going to lose it. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, extraordinarily beautiful girls. There are about 20 of them who separately would cause you to let go of reason together and they stayed together. They were the downfall of any serious attempt at school in the accepted sense and everyone knew it. These were the daughters of people who were beautiful, brave and foolhardy who had left their homes and traveled to movie dreams. In the depression, when most of them came here, people with brains went to New York and people with faces came West. So, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Just got that line in there, Emma. Um, fantastic. What a pitch. I love that. And we're going to come and talk about it in a bit more uh, detail very shortly. But you can have a breather now and have a sip of water. Because um, I'm putting three minutes back on the clock for you, Mr. Ross. Um, just before we start, tell us the book that you're putting forward, please. Well, I only... My defence here is I don't have a copy with this because I only got told about this this morning. Um, <laughs> He's coming up with excuses already. Uh... Yeah, so I'm not going to be able to quote anything from it, but it's Blake Morrison and it's And When Did You Last See Your Father? Fantastic. All right, three minutes on the clock. If you want to use it to tell us yeah, about... I'm not sure I've got three minutes in me on this, but <laughs> we'll anyway, let's, let's see what happens. Uh, over to you then. Well, uh, Blake Morrison was the literary editor of The Independent, I think, way back. And this book came out in the mid-90s. And it, if if I remember correctly, it came out right about the time my father died. That, that That's why I kind of latched on to it. And it's a memoir about a Yorkshire... As far as I remember, he's a GP. It opens with a beautiful scene of, and he tries to put his father into kind of one scene. And it's about, as I remember, it's a long, long queue of cars going into somewhere, some public event or other, and his dad just overtaking them all and just, you know, pissing everyone else <laughs> off. And and so um, it, it becomes this memoir of his father who had died. And... Uh, I remember us all going on holiday to France not long after this, and actually I took my mother down. It was a few months after my dad had died. My sister came out. We all shared a house. And the book just got passed around the family. And any time any of my friends' fathers have died, um, I've always recommended this book to them because it seems like the perfect thing. But the great trick, of course, is, it's it's the title of a, of a, of a, um, a, a painting, you know, from the... Um, restoration period. You know, when did you last see the the, the, the cavaliers and roundheads? Mm. And of course, the famous, when did you last see your father? Because he's obviously hiding. But he remembers his father, of course. When was it? I really saw him because he's dying of cancer. And there's that beautiful thing, and it, it made me reflect on it, is what is the point where you really do see that person for the last time? Is it, in fact, these last 
minutes of their life what you've spent together in this lovely scene or is it in fact maybe two months before that or a few years before when were they really alive um, so it's a beautiful memoir and beyond that I, I kind of because the, the, the whole book kind of ends up unfolding and you find that this pan had a fairly chaotic life and wasn't wasn't at all the ideal father as no one is <laughs> as a father of four I know this um, so you know it's it's just a it's it's a great book to to be a sort of post uh, loss book if if you're in that situation, but mm -hmm. it's a great book anyway. A really great writer because Blake Morrison's gone on to write much more. I didn't even get to the honk. You didn't, I'm but I'm going to give you one anyway. Thank you. Uh, and you went, you know, thirty seconds to spare there, Ricky. So that sprint was pretty good. That's pretty. That good. wins so me something. Minutes. Yeah. Um, and what a, a fabulous pitch as well. I've got to come back and talk about about this. Uh, Blake Morrison book um, just for the last few minutes though Emma um, let's delve back into Eve Babbitt obviously you've hooked me in because you've said she loves to write about LA and she loves LA already I'm like yeah tick 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 I absolutely love that 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 story about her waking up from a coma <laughs> realising her bills had been paid and the words she said I mean it, it's almost like that story an anecdote tells you or certainly me all I need to know about her and perhaps what this book will be about and the style and everything and the the whole sort of you know her writing about the beauty of other women I absolutely love that I love that you described the writing as powerful and also like jazz mm. I'm just instantly intrigued by this book it sounds just brilliant good and probably quite influential to you well influential to me but i think it's one of those funny um pieces that exist in the ether that whether or not she's read it i would say it's very influential to phoebe waller bridge and to fleabag because she's writing about, ah. um love and sex and things that could be dismissed as like frivolous women's stories mm. it's almost sort of quasi-religious way because they, it is her religion yeah and the fact that it was in the early 70s as well yeah yeah, I think when you move to America from England, one of the things I hated about the UK is the association of sex with comedy, like like Benny Hill, Hen Nights, comedic, erotic takes and stuff like that. It was just like, so upsetting to me. And I love how seriously Eve takes love and sex is kind of a, a blueprint for me and Phoebe mm. Wallerbridge, whether or not she knows it. Yeah. <laughs> And Ricky, I, I don't know of this book, um, but instantly you've made me want to maybe read it, you know, as in like, or certainly be knowledgeable of it for those who perhaps have lost their father or mm. lost someone. Um, I think it's so, probably so hard to write a really good memoir about, you know, a, a family member and to be beautiful as you've described it. And yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, by way of an anecdote of this, um, I was halfway through my book and my father died in 94. And I realized, a bit like um, Emma's description of sex, that every time I'd come to my father, I'd sort of joked about him. Mm. You know, because my dad was one of these guys that didn't have any practical skills about putting shelves up or fixing things in the garden. And I, I'd sort of done that thing about joke and it was kind of really lame it was like you know if someone read this book they'd think well who is this guy yeah. and I thought wait a minute he was my best friend he was like I, I still miss him I still want to call him up on a mm. Saturday after football results I still think he is the most influential person and he had so much great stuff in him mm. and he was so kind and so generous and one of the things I loved about him I talk about this in the book is his love of England you know, he was Scottish, but we all supported England in the World Cup in 1966 until I became a, you know, typical of my mates and going, ah, yeah, it's great when they get put, you know. Mm. But all that sort of stuff in later life, I thought, I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad you loved all yeah. that stuff. Um, and so to write about your dad and I think to, to do it in a rounded kind of way, obviously you've got to have that distance. You've got to, you know, you've got to be able to do it honestly, but also just to to give them their, their due. I thought it was just a lovely thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to have a post-lost a post-loss book to be able to give to people and recommend is a lovely thing. And that idea of, like, when did you actually, you know, see them last? When were they, like, really last alive? I love that yeah, sort yeah. of thought. Yeah, it's, it it's, it's, so, it's, it's so 
you know, I think it's so true of of of, of that thing about yeah. loss because especially you know, and I have Lorraine's lost her dad suddenly. He, he dropped dead, and it's such a painful thing. Mm. My dad. He didn't die that suddenly. He was ill, but nevertheless, he died at a time when none of us expected yeah. it. And it's you, you're always you're always left with these things that you wish you'd said and so on. So yeah, it's a great it's 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 a it's a powerful book. Yeah, it sounds it. Well, I loved both of those pictures, and thank you both for them, and thanks for bringing them to our attention. Both of these books deserve to win, but I've got to, I've got to pick one to take home because uh, that's the game that I've set up for myself over <laughs> 10 series of this podcast. Um, oh, I'm going to take Eve's Hollywood. I'm going to take Eve's Hollywood. Uh, I think Eve Babbitt and I are going to get on, but I'm also definitely going to check out Blake Morris and Ricky because that sounds like a very powerful book. In fact, they both uh, sound like fabulous memoirs. Uh, and I can give you... A recommendation for two other fabulous memoirs as well. Walking Back Home by Ricky Ross, which is out now and it's published by Headline. And Busy Being Free by Emma Forrest, also out now, published by Weinfeld and Nicholson. And I absolutely loved both of those books, as I said. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading them. I read them both in one sitting. Uh, not together, separate sittings. Um, Ricky, thank you so much for being here in London. Emma, thanks so much for joining us on your holiday. It's been an absolute pleasure spending this time with you both. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Emma. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 